Hey, do you like weird movies? You do? Have you heard of Vinegar Syndrome? Find them online at www.vinegarsyndrome.com. Vinegar Syndrome is one of the leading exploitation and grindhouse preservation and distribution companies in the world. They've got a simple three-step process that I call the three R's. Recover, restore, and release. Vinegar Syndrome has an amazingly large film archive consisting of thousands of 35 and 16 millimeter negatives and prints and are actively finding films that are underappreciated, undervalued, and underseen. So many of their releases have never seen the light of day since VHS, and they're restoring them to all their glory. Some of these films do not have the right to look as good as they do, but they do. I'm looking at you, corpse grinders. Vinegar Syndrome has their own method of restoration where their goal is to recreate the theatrical experience as best as they can. With their own in-house lab, they scan, color grade, and restore each title personally. You'll never see any grain reduction and digital trickery on their discs. Vinegar Syndrome is a very exciting label, and we're proud to have them as a sponsor. They've been with us since the beginning, and we love them for it. Check out their website today and grab yourself a copy of Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, Body Melt, Wonder Woman, Ice Cream Man, Christmas Evil, Dolomite, or my favorite, the Wisconsin Blood Trilogy of Blood Beat, Blood Hook, and the upcoming Blood Harvest. Once again, be sure to visit them at www.vinegarsyndrome.com and grab yourself something cool. Let them know your good friend Michael sent you. Today's episode of The Shameless Picture Show is sponsored by Mill Creek Entertainment. Mill Creek is the industry leader when it comes to value price DVD and Blu-ray features and compilations. They have one of the largest catalogs out there, ranging from kids programming, classic films and television, independent cinema, documentary, and Latino cinema. Hell, they even produce their own content in-house. Mill Creek is a trusted partner with some of our favorite studios, including Sony Pictures, Walt Disney Entertainment, Warner Brothers, CBS Home Entertainment, and many more. And the best part about Mill Creek is how easy they are to find. Mill Creek has deals with thousands of big box stores, grocery stores, drug stores, and practically any other retailer you can imagine. Trust me when I say I've owned plenty throughout my time as a collector without even realizing it. They're a name I can trust. Some of my favorite releases include Can't Hardly Wait, Night of the Living Dead, House on Haunted Hill from their Vincent Price collection, the complete series of Quantum Leap, the complete series of The Secret World of Alex Mack, and of course, you're the hunter from the future. Head over to www.millcreekent.com, that's millcreekent.com, and see what their collection has to offer. I guarantee you'll find something great. Warning! This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. If this doesn't appeal to you, why listen to a movie podcast? Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Byers, and today is going to be a weird episode. 
Uh, I'm referring to this as a pardon our dust episode. As some of you might know, my wife and I just moved into our first house, which is super exciting, but also very stressful. Unpacking has taken some time away from the show because I don't honestly have as much time to sit around and just watch movies all day. So I didn't want to leave you guys without a new episode. So I'll be sitting down today with my buddy and friend to the show, Kyle Arkey, to discuss the James Bond film Dr. No for a bit. And then I'm going to talk about some really cool releases from Milk Creek and Vinegar Syndrome after he's signed off. So, how are you doing today, Kyle? Good. I like uh, being known as a, a friend to the show. Well, you've now you you've listened to enough episodes, and you've been on a couple episodes already. I think you've been on twice, three. This is now th- your third time on the show. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Which is, other than Amanda, who's the unofficial co-host of the show, <laughs> that's the most anyone's been on. She's the co-host to the show. She's the co-host to your life. It's, it's true. It's true. <laughs> so How yes, was your anniversary, by the way? I'm sorry? How was the anniversary? Uh, anniversary was good because we did nothing. We just we, we went through some boxes <laughs> around the house. Um, I installed a smart thermostat so I can control the temperature when I'm not home to save myself some money. Nice. Um, and then I installed those those rear speakers. Oh, sure. I love, uh, you know, going to your place, this new place. I don't know. You've had it for, what, like a couple weeks, and you've already got it set up so that you can, like, tell Google to do everything. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's pretty great. You've got your speakers set up. You're like, I know what the priorities are. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and soon, next time you come over, we're going to have lights installed that I can control through my voice. Whoa. Nice. Okay. And then the the rear speakers, I, I I remember that day, I installed the thermostat th- first, thinking this is going to be the harder one, because I don't know anything about thermostats, and it took like 20 minutes. It was honestly extremely easy. And my thought process was, well, the speakers, I know how to how to hook up speakers, that'll be the easy part, especially because the guy who lived here first had holes drilled in the two spots I need them to be drilled into, so I was like, oh, this is going to be easy. It wasn't, um, because... I bought these really nice um, uh, Definitive Technology speakers, and because originally I was going to use my old speakers I had as rears, but Amanda didn't like the way they looked, so she's like, "I'd rather you just buy smaller speakers that we can mount on the walls." I'm like, "Well, cool, because the new speakers would be better quality anyways, yeah. so she didn't have to twist my arm on it." Um, but then when we uh, we were trying to put the mounting brackets up, we realized they didn't give us any screws, so I then had to run run to the store. And I didn't bring the mount with me, so I didn't know the exact size I needed. So I was just guessing. And then I got home, and I had to run cabling down to the basement and back up. And I was frustrated and dumb and didn't measure anything. So I uh, And I had to do it a couple times, and I ran out of speaker wire. So I had, it required me to run out again and buy speaker wire. And it was a whole thing. Well... At least it was worth it. I think so. You know, kind of like you had said at the beginning of this thing, you know, we're talking about Dr. No mm-hmm. today. And uh, this is the first time I had seen Dr. No was at your house just a couple of days ago. Um, and being able to hear it with the surround sound. There were a few parts in particular in which the, like, back speakers, you could hear a little bit, and that was fun. Yeah. So. And I, I've actually, because I, I noticed when we were watching it the other day, because now I've got an ear for this, and I'm gonna, it's something I obsess over, I could tell something was off of the speakers, and they're at, the levels were actually too low. 
So like I've gone back and rewatched some of that, those scenes, and it's like more stuff pops up now because I had readjusted the back speakers. But no, I guess uh, we'll we'll talk more about it here in a minute. But like specifically that scene where like we heard Doctor No's voiceover and it was coming from behind yeah. us. That was that was a treat. Yeah, it was. It was really fun. <laughs> so without burying the lead, um, as I said before, on today's episode we'll be discussing the first proper James Bond film, Doctor No. Directed by Terrence Young in 1962, the film was the brainchild of Albert Broccoli and Robert Saltzman. Both loved Ian Fleming's debonair spy and thought it would make a fantastic movie. Dr. No tells the story of a double agent by the name of James Bond that is sent on a mission by MI6 to look into the disappearance of another MI6 agent, and also to see if there's a connection to a case the CIA is working on about rocket launches being disrupted. It's a very convoluted beginning of a, of a movie. Like, go do this thing, but also do this other thing while you're there. Um, the mission sees Bond heading off to Jamaica and helps establish all the Bond tropes we know and love. Everything from amazing sceneries, crazy judo flips, witty sexist one-liners, <laughs> crazy villains, cool cars, and much, much more. The Bond franchise also helped kick off spy fever in films and television, and the genre, both good and bad, would never be the same again. The film, as for mentioned, was directed by Terrence Young, who would go on to direct three Bond films in total. The script was written by Richard My- uh, I can never pronounce his name correctly, Richard Mybaum, with revisions done by the duo Joanna Hardwood and Berkeley Mather. Uh, and this would be the first of seven Bond films that starred Sean Connery and had a supporting cast that featured Ursula Andress, Jack Lord, Bernard Lee, uh, John Kitzmiller, and Joseph Wiseman as the titular Dr. No. My name is Bond, James Bond. My instructions were implicit. I was to leave for Jamaica in two hours, licensed to kill. Now you maybe miss it. You don't miss a thing. I decided to accept your invitation. I have to leave immediately. Just as things were getting interesting again. Bond, 007, licensed to kill whom he pleases, where he pleases, when he pleases. From the elegant club rooms of Mayfair to exotic island night spots. Good evening. Who pays you? You. Tell us. A strange adventure of intrigue, treachery, and love. Mr. Bond, I was thinking, why don't you collect me at my apartment? It's lovely up here in the mountains. Her directions were easy to follow, and she sent a few of her friends to make sure I didn't get lost. She thought I was dead, but I proceeded to prove her wrong. I thought it was always polite to knock first before shooting. Honey, from our very first meeting, was everything her name implied. She clung to me like a wet bathing suit. 
But business as usual came first. The pace was killing. I thought you less stupid. I could have had you killed in the swamp. And why didn't you? You damaged my organization. Unfortunately, I misjudged you. You are just a stupid policeman whose luck is run out. Maybe it was my luck. Up to my neck in hot water. Or something blowing up in my face. You'll live dangerously with the superbly resourceful James Bond. The exclusive screen dramatization of the book that has entertained millions of viewers. The exotic and tantalizing Dr. No. Some people will go to any extremes for a little privacy. I didn't mention a whole lot of Dr. No in that scenario, in that description, because even though he's the title character, he doesn't actually become relevant until the last half hour. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Uh, it's definitely not what we're used to seeing, and I, I liked it. I liked it a lot. You you know, you hear sort of rumblings about who he is. And such and a that cool even... name, too. It's like, you just, <laughs> Dr. No's a name you're not going to forget. Right. And even that name, I feel like, doesn't really pop up all that much. No, uh, like it takes a little while before that even starts popping up. You just hear about this like undisclosed location that nobody can go to, um, and then you start hearing about Doctor No. And then when he shows up, what's funny is, so I've talked to you a lot about uh, about James Bond about spy movies because mm -hmm. I I love spy movies, but I I have a very very large blind spot for any Bond films that aren't Daniel Craig's. Mm -hmm. because I was, uh, you know, I grew up uh, having not watched any of them, and the first Bond films I had seen were Craig's, and I knew that everything that sort of came before it had a level of cheesiness to it. Yes. Um, and I wasn't, like, for some reason I'm like, ah, the Bond that I know as the Craig Bond isn't cheesy. It's a pretty serious kind of uh, interpretation of Bond, mm -hmm. and I didn't want to like ruin that for myself um just because some uh, i know that for me personally cheesy films or films that have some of those cheeseball elements don't always work for me yeah um, but what's interesting is dr no comes on and i'm expecting someone you know who's got like crazy scarred face or you know the teeth like jaws or whatever you know something that's yeah. kind of ridiculous and he's wearing these black gloves and he's got metal hands. Um, but that's like it. You know, it's it's a cool like... He's a pretty normal of, guy, all things considered. Yeah, it's a, and it's a subtle, uh, a subtle like quirk to have. Just because you can't see his metal hands, you just see black gloves. I, I also, like that a lot. I, me too, and, I, and it did an interesting job kind of... Because uh, we didn't really officially meet Dr. No until the end, but he's kind of always this aura, uh, like a black cloud above the movie, because you know the movie's named after him, and you know something's up with Crab Island, but you don't really quite know what's up. But it's like one of those things, like you just, you, he's in the back of your head the entire time. And yeah. then when we do meet him... Um, 
it's also kind of great too. Like this movie is like one of the first movies where the villain like over explains their dastardly plot and all this shit. But um, he 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 kind of explains his his origins to Bond. And as I'm watching this, um, I've 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 heard in many interviews that actually Quentin Tarantino is is we all know he's a huge movie buff. As uh, as Doctor No was explaining his origins, I just kept thinking I wouldn't be surprised if Tarantino kind of stole this for his character Oren Ishii in the first Kill Bill, because here you got this mixed race uh, man. I think he's he's part Asian and Polish. I think he said. That I thought he was about right. I think he he said he was mixed, and he 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 got into this criminal underworld and ended up stealing a bunch of money from them and doing his own thing. And I, all I could think of was that character. Well, it's not exactly the same. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a little bit of influence from that. Yeah. Do you know if uh, the actor who plays Doctor No, if he's mixed raced or not? Because I know when we were looking at it, we were like, oh. Maybe that's makeup to make him look Asian. Yeah, but. that's that's both the good and bad thing about Blu-ray is you notice these things now. <laughs> but I, I like noticing that. Uh, I've got Joseph Wiseman's page pulled up, and he's a Canadian actor. Okay. Canadian-American. Um, funny enough, he was once called the spookiest actor in American theater, which is fantastic. Um, it looks like he his parents were Orthodox Jewish. Okay. So... I don't think so. I don't like. I don't think he was Asian at all, which um, kind of makes that that character a little like unsavory a bit. Yeah, I mean that's just it's. I just I find it fascinating that like back in history, like that they didn't just cast <laughs> an Asian actor. That's, that's the debate that we have to this day. Like, why is um, yeah. Scarlett Johansson playing an Asian character, but? What are you going to do? Right. Right. But at least like today, like a lot of the the people that get casted aren't. Uh... Oh, that's not true. There's a lot of controversy yet. Yeah. yeah. Like um, the fact that James, uh, not James Bond, John Wade played Genghis Khan. I think it's a pretty big <laughs> like F you to casting. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> John Wayne. What movie was that? So John Wade played Genghis Khan in the movie The Conqueror in 1956. Oh, and he's got a terrible Fu Manchu and everything. Oh, no. Part yeah. of me wants to see it just because, you know, we know Genghis Khan in history as being, like, basically this mad tyrant. Mm-hmm. And I cannot really picture John Wayne being, like, a total asshole. Um, so I'm just curious how that trans. How his interpretation of Genghis Khan yeah. translates. Well, one thing I will say before we actually get back to Doctor No, <laughs> um, so it was it was made in 1956. It was produced by Howard Hughes, oh, which wow. is fascinating. And it was in a book from 1978. There's a a book called The 50 Worst Films of All Time, and it was on there. Oh gosh! Okay. And John Wayne posthumously won. He was the winner of a Golden Turkey Award for his performance in this movie. So it seems wow. like it's um, critically panned. But now I feel like we need to see it. That's what I'm thinking. I'm like, if something is panned that much, you know, it has some worth. <laughs> I, I I completely agree. I completely <laughs> agree. Usually, like when something's hated that much, it's like there's something here, something. <laughs> right. But um, yeah, I was. 
That being said, which, uh, def- slightly defending Joseph Wiseman as Dr. No, I feel like it would have been very easy just to change his backstory so he wasn't an Asian character because I actually really liked him in that role. <laughs> he, we didn't see him very much. Um, and part I think part of the reason I didn't think of him as an Asian character is because they didn't do a very good makeup job on him. Um, but yes. like for me, I, I, I really liked the actor in that role. I thought he really embodied that character in a really interesting way. Yeah. And um, was a good foil to James Bond because I feel like in movies like this, you sometimes need to have your villain be over the top because James Bond, who the actor who's ever playing him, steals the scene all the time. But here's a character who was not really over the top at all, but I actually feel like he stole every scene he was in. Yeah, he's pretty subtle in everything he does. A little maybe like the icy cold kind of villain a little bit. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's where the quirk is. Um, kind of like Mads Mikkelsen was in Casino Royale. Because he yeah. came out very cold. and Right, right. Yeah, I think that would be a good um, a good sort of like person to, to maybe compare him to. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, even so though, he's like, uh, I think he's a little less memorable than maybe Mads, but I also think that he, Mads is a great actor. Yeah. Especially in that role in Casino Royale. And I think like out of the first three Bond films, I, I personally think Dr. No is, is definitely one of the least memorable because he doesn't... I know you don't like this film as much as I do. I don't think he's nearly as quirky, as interesting as, as Goldfinger was. And... M- most people can never remember who the villain is in from Russia with Love. Okay. It was actually Robert Shaw, you know. Whoa. Yeah, it's a strange film. <laughs> and I mean okay. that in a good way. Uh, Robert Shaw, yeah, he's the villain in the next Bond film, so definitely a reason you should check it out. But um... Yeah, and I guess for those listening, the only non-Ukrainian films I've seen now is Dr. No and um, Goldfinger. I actually preferred this one over Goldfinger, but that's because I felt like it. it Goldfinger is just a tad too cheesy for my taste. Yeah, and the the films do eventually start getting to that cheesiness. Um, though I think maybe you'll agree with me once you start seeing more of them. I personally think the Sean Connery films find a perfect balance of being cheesy without being too over the top. There are some ridiculous things that happen in the films, but the producers made these as as escapist entertainment. Like, they didn't start trying to get serious with the films until a little bit later on. Um, but even that being said, it's like, while he has the same, you know, um, witty mannerisms that other Bond actors do, I think Sean Connery plays them so straight that they seem more like a character trait, whereas the, one, the, the actor who plays him next, Roger Moore, who I actually do like as Bond... Um, I feel like he's just making fun of everything, and it's okay. not as sincere as when Sean Connery plays him. Yeah, I don't really feel like Sean Connery's making fun of anything at all in these films. Uh, I think he's having a little bit of fun with the role, but he feels lifelike to me. And um, yeah, I I don't get it get this idea that he's trying to ham it up by any stretch of imagination. I like him as Bond a lot. I think he's a lot of fun as Bond. Yeah, and definitely fits that persona that you think of when you think of Bond. He's also really good, and I think this is one thing I liked about Daniel Craig as Bond, where 
both actors will make a comment or say something, but they are... You get the idea that they're just kind of taking things in and they're listening more often than not. Like, where some of the other actors feel like they're waiting to get their shit in. Oh, interesting. And it just kind of feels like um, Sean Connery and Daniel Craig are both kind of just taking in the surroundings and are always thinking and trying to be one step ahead. Where some of the other Bonds honestly just feel like they made him into um, like almost like a superhero where everything he does is going to be perfect. Whereas with Daniel Craig and Sean Connery, I feel like at any moment, their plan could come apart and he's just trying to figure it out as he's going. Like there's that great, well, I use great in parentheses, scene near the end of Dr. No, where for whatever reason he decides to just overload the, the, the reactor. I don't think he had a plan. I don't think he knew what was going to happen, but he's like, this something's going to happen if I don't do something. Right. Yeah, I don't know if we're jumping the gun by talking about the ending right away. Nah, but, we jump around uh, the show all the time. I do think that that ending sequence is, it is very reminiscent of like a Daniel Craig, just like, shit, this is a bad situation. <laughs> yeah. uh, I might make it worse. I might make it better, but I know I'm going to screw up this guy's plans. And I think and that's... that at least is a step in some direction. <laughs> yeah, like the thing I liked about the ending of Dr. No, whereas the Bond trope usually starts to become, well, what can I do to foil the bad guy so I can ride off in the sunset with the girl? Like, there is a moment, and maybe I'm just reading too much into this, where I felt like with Sean Connery's version of Bond, where he's like, I don't know if I'm going to get out of this alive. Totally. But I, yeah, this is what I have to do. Like, for every scene where he's extremely confident and debonair, this shows the humanity, I think, of Bond, where he's like, mm-hmm. this, this mission is bigger than me. Right. And that's what I liked about this, this version of him, where he's just, you know, the mission is the thing, not me. I'm not the thing like even just little things like i love that like i i always sometimes think of of james bond as a center of attention type character or whoever everyone knows who james bond is but i loved that like he's being spatially aware enough that he realized that woman took a took two different photos of him yep and he's like no that's weird that can't happen i don't know maybe i'm thinking too much into it but i i really like little nuances that Sean Connery brings to Bond, especially because when you think of subtlety, you don't think of the James Bond series. Right. I think what's interesting to what you had sort of uh, said earlier about about Connery as Bond, mm-hmm. and the same is sort of true with Craig, is that they're they're taking things in. You can tell that they're thinking, mm-hmm. and um, that's something that I think in spy films, it, it's one of the reasons why I love spy films because I feel like as an audience member you're always trying to figure out what the next step is. Where's this film going? What maybe is the twist? Who's going to turn in some cases for spy films and to have a, uh, to have a main character that is doing, that is constantly thinking. It makes you feel a little closer to that person. Cause yeah. that's what you're doing as an audience member. As well. And it also makes you trust them because you go, Oh, this person's smart. They're not just, crazy shit they're all thinking things through they're thinking the next step yeah and And then it's fun too to see those plans completely go to you know go to waste you can do all this thinking all this planning and uh then you still get caught Mm -hmm. it's funny too like i i did a little bit of research on the film 
and Terrence Young, who directed the film, was not their first choice of a director. Um, actually, Guy Hamilton, it, who w- would later on actually go on to direct quite a few Bond films himself, was <laughs> one of the guys they originally approached to do the film, and he turned it down. Um, he actually directed four Bond films later on. Um, and at one point, they, were, they wanted to pitch it to Alfred Hitchcock, of all people. But they eventually settled on Terrence Young because they thought he had a really unique visual style to his films. Remember that Sean was a pretty rough diamond at that time. And Terrence taught him everything he knew. I think he really sort of coached Sean how to be James Bond. He had a maximum amount of style. He had an enormous influence on creating James Bond in the person of Sean. This real style and the movement of the piece was um, Terence Young stamped all over it. If you asked what were the three ingredients for Dr. No, for James Bond, it was Sean Connery, Sean Connery, Sean Connery. And one thing that I thought he did really well in this film, which going back to the subtlety or lack thereof of James Bond, was he was not afraid to, you know, to show, not tell. Like there's, it's it's so it's so dumb. But like the scene where D- James Bond takes a piece of his hair and puts it over the door, he yeah. doesn't. You know, there's not another character in the room for him to be like, oh, that way I know if someone's coming in. He just does it and then pays off later on if you're paying attention. And he never speaks of it. Yeah, I thought there's that never was like really the nice. hmm. Right. You have a very quick little close up. I don't even know if it's a close up when he looks back to see if the hair is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's very quick, and then you're just on to the next thing, which I think is what a lot of films of that period kind of do, too. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, it's over-explaining everything. Um, and I really appreciate, it's like, you know, you expect your audience, when they're sitting at a movie, you expect them to kind of pay attention. And if they are paying attention, there's a reward there for them. Yeah. Um, because the film does that the really Bond, well. The Bond films in general, and actually spy films in general, um, not all of them, but a lot of them usually lack some subtlety just because you do have usually such a big convoluted plot. The reason we have that cliche of the bad guy explaining what's happening is because our audience would never know. I would, uh, yeah, on top of that point, I think people should check out uh, Empire, Empire was it Magazine's uh, podcast with Christopher McQuarrie, who's the director of the last two Mission Impossible films. Mm-hmm. He talks a lot about how in this lat, like in Rogue Nation, there is a lot of that kind of like you have to explain things because audience members need to understand it. And then in Fallout, there isn't a lot of that. And he made a very conscious choice to make that uh, Mission Impossible Fallout a lot more about the emotions and about the character of Ethan Hunt rather than about like. These, this is how spy films are done and how these tropes are need to be executed in order for an audience to understand. Um, it's like a six-hour-long podcast, but for anyone who's watched those last two Mission movies, it is like a, it is just huge in the film. It is probably the most in-depth look into a, a, the filmmaking process that I've ever actually like heard in terms of the behind the scenes i've been meaning to watch that i just since i haven't seen the most recent couple um mission impossible films i didn't know if they would work if the conversation would still be as interesting to me but i think it would be um you definitely should watch them before just because it will give a lot of context uh, obviously to what he's talking about but 
yeah, I, both of his films, I, I would say, are the best Mission Impossible films and some of the best action films maybe ever um, with Rogue Nation and uh, Fallout. Yeah. Like he did, he's just a damn good director and a damn good writer, really, is what it is, too. Yeah, I know you oh, yeah. went, you went and be like your entire collection of them, so <laughs> I'm eventually going to get to all of them. Um, I, I haven't uh, I've been waiting for the next one to come out on DVD and Blu-ray, so that way I can catch up in a timely matter. Um, right. One thing I want to talk about I don't know how much more time you got, but um, a little bit of time, yeah. I like to talk. I like to always think about like what what film history would be like if certain things came into motion. Okay, and. So, for example, they, they offered this film to Alfred Hitchcock. And this would be a very different movie if Alfred Hitchcock took over. Like, I feel like it might still have some of the, the wittiness, because he did have quite a sense of humor. But I, w- I would love to imagine what this film would be like without Alfred Hitchcock as a uh, director. And it's really interesting, too, because Alfred... I, I found out about uh, Hitchcock. how um, he, he loved going to the movies... Okay. Even if he didn't necessarily like the movies, because like there's there's a great story that Guy Hamilton tells, who when he made uh, Goldfinger, that because uh, he said he was friends with Alfred Hitchcock, and he asked, he's like, well, Hitch, what do you think of Goldfinger? He thought he said, I thought it was complete rubbish. However, there's a scene that I wish I would have thought of, and there's a scene in that movie where. Um, when Bond's escaping from Goldfinger's lair, an old woman pulls out a machine gun. He's like, did not <laughs> yeah. see it coming. He's like, it was the most brilliant thing of the movie. And I just like to imagine like what one of these movies would have been like if Hitchcock would have made it. Or um, Ken Adam, who is the, um, the production designer in the film, so he's responsible for all these crazy sets and everything. He also did the production design on uh, Doctor Strangelove. So it makes me think, like, yeah. what would one of these films wow. be like if, if Kubrick would have directed it? Oh, gosh. Holy crap. I don't even know how to answer that one. And then there's there's always been a great rumor around that Stanley Kubrick snuck into a James Bond set and helped light one of the scenes. Jeez. Okay. It was, um, it was the film The Spy Who Loved Me. And... Um, uh, Claude Renoir was was shooting the film, and they and they were he was friends of Kubrick, um, so Kubrick snuck onto the set to help him light that scene. It was a big tanker scene, and I was like, oh, imagine how interesting that would have been if Kubrick would have directed a, one of these Bond films. It's kind of like I loved the idea of um, who was the director that just dropped out of. Oh, Danny Boyle. Like that was it, Kubrick directing a Bond film would have been like if Danny right. Boyle would have actually gotten to direct it. Yeah, I, it still bums me out that Boyle dropped out of it, just because I think like he has such a distinct shooting and editing style that would have been really kind of weird but cool to see in a Bond film. I think yeah. there's some a few other like high profile names that have always wanted to direct a Bond film. Uh, I know Christopher Nolan has always wanted to direct one. I feel like Spielberg might might be one of those people too. Yeah, Spielberg always wanted to do one. Nolan always wanted to do one. Uh, the director who did the Kingsman films always wanted to do one, and that's why he did the Kingsman instead because he's like, well, fuck it, I'm gonna make my own Bond. Makes sense. Well, you know, it's kind of nice that he went and did his own Bond because he, Bond can't really 
can't really be rated R, I don't think. I think they need to make those films PG-13 for their audiences, which, I mean, I don't think they need to. I just think that the studios feel that. Um, but it's nice to have this Kingsman sort of upping the, the cheesy factor, but being very fun about it, and also just being able to, like, swear and do whatever they want. Um, it's nice to have a rated R kind of bond, and I think Kingsman does a good job of being that. I agree. So yeah, I guess I just always like to imagine like what would what could have been in the Bond franchise because, like, I'm 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 trying to look I'm I want to look up a list of James Bond directors and for the most part, there's no directors that really stand out as being like oh shit this person did a Bond film. It's Except either people maybe. that were friendly with with Cubby Broccoli. And made their name doing Bond films and did a really good job with it. Sam Mendes, to me, is probably... Again, I haven't studied all the Bond films, but Sam Mendes seems to be like one of the bigger names that stepped onto one. Yeah, like I'm looking at the list right now, and it's like most of them are like, yeah, that makes sense, and doesn't really stand out to me. So I'm trying to remember. I feel bad for this. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the Bond film that I have on my personal shame list. Oh. But it's the one... Yeah. It's it's one of the Pierce Brosnan ones directed by Martin Campbell who made a Casino Royale. Was it um, Goldeneye? I, I think so. I, I think, think Goldeneye is the only other film he did. Yeah, and that I've always wanted to see it just, to, just because I thought Campbell did such a good job with Casino Royale that I'm curious to know what he did with Brosnan. Um, but... Going back to your like point about Hitchcock saying uh, that that old lady shocked him. Mm-hmm. Um, in Doctor No, the things that shocked me were actually like the deaths that happened in this film shocked me a bit. Yeah. I thought the death of uh, both deaths of Quarrel and Doctor No kind of come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. One of them, Quarrel's death is great because you're just like, oh shit, he just died from that dragon tank thing but it was completely unexpected and, and the nope. thing that he was most afraid of too yeah yeah and then dr no i felt died really easily <laughs> i was like oh he's dead yeah falling into a reactor pool is not really anything too special but then just to like you know the film rides a line because i think this film is technically rated pg i'm Whoa. trying to remember oh, like um maybe. i'm trying to see if i can find the exact rating of the film but because yeah, I think it was PG because there was no PG thirteen rating at this time. Right. Um, like while a lot of it was shown off camera, like some of the deaths are pretty like James Bond grabbing that guard and just stabbing him in the back repeatedly, and his answer just was like I had to do it. Yeah, yeah. Because like eventually, because some of the Bond deaths later on become like living motion rube goldberg machines where it's like a series of things happen that kills someone or it's usually big elaborate death it's like you don't like i was telling you that's one thing i liked about sean connor he got his hands dirty mm-hmm. absolutely well yeah that, i think that's what surprised me about dr no kind of just like falling into this pool and that was it because mm-hmm. i was expecting this elaborate death mm-hmm. that we didn't receive um yeah yeah but it 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 is interesting to see just how, like, you you made that comparison to Craig earlier, Craig's mm-hmm. Bond. And Connery definitely, like, for me, 
he he feels they both feel very similar in, yeah. in terms of their portrayal. So not knowing the other bonds, you know, I don't know how much they change over with every actor's portrayal, but I, yeah, I really like, um, I really like Connery as bond and I like that he gets his hands dirty. And, um, I think he's suave. Like I like his suaveness. I love all that stuff. Um, Oh gosh, I'm trying to remember who it was with, uh, was it was it Miss Tarot? Uh, it's a he's he ends up getting with um that one chick and then sending her off in a taxi was it or no he he uh he ends up uh getting her arrested um but he's really suave with her mm-hmm. and she's trying to to sort of do uh, pull shenanigans on him. I just like how he responded to her. Yeah, and one thing I can say about some of the other bonds that people that played bond so you know we, we we know sean connery and his style and he'd later on to, he'd later go on to kind of resent the james bond films and actually not so much i don't think so much necessarily the fact that he played the character it's just, he was trying to get away from the character when they kept trying to pull him back in and he had issues with with Albert Broccoli and everything about you know being old money and a whole thing, but I think he's kind of come to peace with it. But you know he kind of he was the gold standard for the character. He's he's the person that everyone is going to compare it to. But then you would later go on to George Lazenby, who would play him for one movie. Um, was not an actor at all kind of lied he was he i think he worked on cars and he kind of lied his way into into an audition and just kind of fell into the role there's a whole movie about him on hulu called becoming bond that's kind of fascinating sure sure um it's part live action part him telling the story and then roger moore would play it i think for the longest tenure actually uh, because he was 70 something to 80 something and he was interesting because he was he was the one that almost felt like he was making fun of the character sometimes when while i like him in some in some of his movies it just seemed like he would never get hurt nothing would ever stop him he just like he was that superman bond gotcha okay and then timothy dalton came in and his stuff is his stuff is usually re- referred to as not as good, which I will fight people on. Um, he's looked down upon because his he he wanted to be more of a brooding, darker Bond, and not so like um, sarcastic. Hmm. So that was the, something they were trying to do to compete with all like the '80s action movies like Schwarzenegger and Stallone. So they're trying to do a darker Bond, and it didn't work for everyone. So because of that timothy dalton's career as bond is usually looked down upon but i don't know i kind of like it i it's if you want the more like nihilistic dark bond films you go for his that sounds like something i would be interested in yeah. like i like this i like portrayals uh, uh of these main characters that aren't aren't just like hey i'm the good guy i'm gonna do these good things like they've got a little bit more of an edge to them it's my one maybe my one gripe with uh, Mission Impossible, which I love, but Ethan Hunt is just that go, go getter, stop the bad guys, I'm gonna do what's right kind of thing. Um, and I, I like 
I like when the the main characters of spy movies are a little more a little more dirty because I feel like that is what the profession is is it's a little dirty so you can't quite trust a person or you don't quite agree with their viewpoints or something yeah and I, that, think, I think you actually might like Dalton's films. I actually yeah. don't own any of his on Blu-ray because I've been holding out to buy the big collection. But um, one thing that I find interesting about him is I'm just... Um, um, he's been compared to Daniel Craig, or Daniel Craig's been compared to him. It's kind of like a combination between Sean Connery and his Bond. And Roger Moore, who played the Bond before him, thought he was the best actor to ever play Bond. Wow. So, okay. And then Pierce Brosnan kind of tried to do a combination of all of them. I think he was trying to be the Bond of the 90s, where um, he was suave, he was debonair, he got his hands dirty. He's trying to like kind of be a combination of all of them. He is kind of like old-fashioned in a way, but not like tongue-in-cheek. Okay. And then we all know Daniel Craig and his role, and I personally think he's one of my favorites to play Bond. Yeah, I mean, I love, I love him as that character. Because even the movies that don't work as well for me, like Spectre, he's still really good in it. Absolutely, he knows that character super well. But that's what happens when you like. What's What's interesting? I mean, I guess he kind of came into notoriety from playing Bond, but you can tell by the stuff that he does outside of it that he's not necessarily interested in being a movie star. He's interested in being a really good actor. Yeah. And I remember, like, a buddy of mine in high school before, uh, what was the year that Casino Royale came out? I want to say it was 06. Uh, yeah, it was 06. So maybe it was actually right before high school. Yeah, that sounds about right. Or right when I was getting into high school, where a buddy of mine had seen Daniel Craig in the movie um, Layer Cake. Okay. And which is one of his early films, and said, "Man, this guy would be an amazing Bond." And we all just kind of like <laughs> laughed at him because, like, here's this blue-eyed, white, uh, blonde-haired guy who's Layer Cake is for, for the most part he's just kind of a goof, like he's a kind of a goof character. Um, but he was right. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he wanted him for his goofballiness, and then he turned. <laughs> completely swapped into it's, the it's also funny off. too because layer cake was directed by matthew vaughn who would go on to do the kingsman films sure <laughs> gosh that's so that's pretty fun that's kind of funny but um yeah i'm i uh i had a great time rediscovering dr no it was one that I, I knew i had seen but i had bought it with the with the intent of re rediscovering it um and it's it's got me like really excited to not necessarily go through every single film in the franchise, but like I'm actually really excited to have you over to watch uh, from Russia with Love, which I think will be a good time. Well, I'm you know after watching Goldfinger, I was kind of like oh, I don't think I need to watch any more of these old Bond films. <laughs> it's honestly the opinion that I had just because I'm like it's just a little too much of that that cheese from back then that I. Is just not my taste. I get why other people like him. It's just not my personal taste. But when you're like, hey, I'm going to watch Bond. I'm going to check out Dr. No. And you had mentioned that it was like basically the first Bond film. I'm like, well, I got to check this one out just to see what what's the first one like. Mm -hmm. And it actually makes me want to go and watch more. That's which good. I'm excited about. 
I'm excited that you're excited because like <laughs> I'm surprised that I had such a uh, I, I gravitated so much to Bond as a kid because I had terrible ADD when I was a kid. And okay. James Bond is a lot of talking. Oh yeah, it is. And that's why I'm surprised that I enjoyed it as much as I did. I it's actually kind of refreshing how much talking is in it in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Because you're just you're just trying to figure out what people's motives are, and that's fun. Yeah, it's, and it's kind of it's I kind of like going through half a movie, not not even sure what the fuck is happening. <laughs> yep. It's like so we have all these pieces, I just can't put it together. That's what I kind of thought was interesting about Doctor No was. We're going through it, and I'm kind of like, I'm not quite sure if I know what's going on, but I also don't care because it's been in every scene has been enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And you had mentioned too when we were watching the film um, about how these the Bond films can be relatively long, but the scenes are relatively short. Mm-hmm. Like all the scenes sort of get to where they need to be and they move on. Um, except for maybe the ending scene um, in Dr. No, but everything else is the scenes are nice and just crisp and they move forward. And even though you might not know what is going on at the movie, if you're not paying enough attention, each scene is enjoyable enough to keep you going through the experience. There's actually like, I remember once upon a time when I first started learning screenwriting through, from Ryan Plato. So I don't know okay. if he listens to this, but he's getting a shout out. Um, in one of my early scripts, you know, I, 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 I had never really read much, read a whole lot of scripts. So I was just writing everything that came to mind in the scene. You know, anytime a character would lift up a soda can to drink it or some stupid shit like that, that all the issues that we make. And Plato told me, he, cause like I had a character drinking coffee and he is like, don't talk about a character drinking coffee unless it's poisoned. Nice. And I, all I could think about that came that came back to mind for me when they're at Doctor No's palace and uh, <laughs> they, when they're drinking the coffee and then they end up passing out. It was like they they didn't they don't draw a lot of focus onto what they're eating or drinking unless it's you know Bond's like classic martini or whatever because unless it's important. And well, that's I one think... thing the film does well is they don't draw they don't linger on things. Yeah. What. What's interesting, though, about what you just said is um, throughout the whole movie, we see Bond, like, going to drink stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, you're sort of setting it up in a weird mm-hmm. way. Because you're at the point where he's finally drinking the coffee, you're just used to him drinking stuff that you're like, oh, whatever. Yeah. It's just him doing his thing. And boom, it's poisoned. I also just love, like, and that scene, too, also just is a great example of what I was saying with Bond, just, like, I don't think he has a plan. He's just going with it. Like, when, you know, um, Honey, it, Honey Rider is like, oh, we, this is, you know, we sh- how can you eat at a time like this? And he's like, because I'm hungry. Like, <laughs> he doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know what he's going to do, but he knows there's food in front of him, and he's hungry. Well, it's also interesting, too, because, like, we're, we're made out to think that he's this really... Um, smart sort of street smart kind of guy throughout the film because like you said he he notices the photographer he notices basically all of the henchmen that are coming he has already seen you know he's like yeah I already know that they're there but then what he's sort of as wits end at the end of the film and he's not paying attention anymore mm-hmm. um, he maybe it's maybe it's honey rider he's sort of entranced with her too much that he can't see uh that his coffee's poisoned yeah um, 
but yeah, it's it's interesting that you kind of go throughout this whole movie, and he does have a little bit of a leg up on everyone. But then the minute that he doesn't, he sort of lets it all kind of go loose and goes, "Oh shit, I don't know where to go from here." Yeah, like I get the impression from Sean Connery as Bond. Um, this is one. Of, I guess one of the things I also like about Daniel Craig as Bond is I get the impression that. Sean Connery, like his his version of Bond, got the job. Not necessarily. Like I, I don't feel like he went to like school to become an agent or anything like that. You know, like a people you have to go to school to become a CIA agent. I feel like he was this scrappy kid that somehow like impressed his way into it. Kind of like how Captain Kirk became captain because he cheated the system. They're more yeah. impressed by the fact that he could do that than the fact that than anything else. Um. So, like, I don't get the impression... I don't think James his version of James Bond is dumb. But, like you said, he's more street smart. I feel like he's more likely to swing a fist than anything else. Like, even just by the fact that, like, the gun that he chose to use at the beginning. And there's a great feature on the disc where uh, a, an arms expert is showing how actually unpowerful his original gun was <laughs> compared to the one that they gave him. And I just I just feel like he he was quick on his feet and he could solve any issue maybe not necessarily in the best way and that's kind of how he got to where he's at. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's interesting too that that like little character trait doesn't really pop up anywhere else mm-hmm. in that film because it's like a fun thing where it almost sets him up as being this sentimental person or this person that. Uh, you know, he has his specific way that he likes doing things, even if it's not the right, like, even if it's not the most efficient way. Mm-hmm. He's going to use his gun. That's the gun he's always used. Um, where they don't really make much of that going forward after that scene. Um, but then again, I guess it does, It do, in a way it does set up that he's, like, you know, even though his gun jammed, he was able to finish that mission. He didn't die. Mm-hmm. You know, there's that little line of dialogue. Um, and I guess that kind of sets up the ending where he goes, well, I don't know what to do, but I'm going to do something. Yeah. Honestly, his character, this Sean Connery version of Bond reminds me of going back to Kingsman, the character of Eggsy, where he's not, you know, one of these. Cl- he wasn't he, he wasn't being groomed to become an agent. He just uh, he found his own way to do things and he impressed everyone. So, um, I think I've exhausted everything I could talk about for Dr. No at the moment. <laughs> That's all good, and it's kind of a good time, too. I should probably get get to work. Perfect. And, you know, we originally think, we were, oh, we were going to talk for like a half hour or whatever, and it's we're at the 53-minute <laughs> yeah. mark, so <laughs> this is almost an official episode. Yeah, I guess we could just make it an official episode. Yeah, I'm want. probably going to. I'm still going to tack on the end part where I talk about some um, a couple other things. but um, What do you have to talk about? Um, I will be talking about... The Mill Creek release for the TV show Community. Nice. Uh, me and Amanda have made it through a season and a half so far, and so I'm going to talk about that. And then there is a Vinegar Syndrome release called Incubus that they sent me that I'm going to be talking about. So I've, I'm going to watch that probably as soon as I get off the air with you, and that'll, that'll be, be on the end. So probably an extra cool. like 10, 15 minutes of me rambling. Nice. But thank you for coming on, Kyle. I always appreciate it. I feel like we have really, always really great conversations. Yeah, I hope I said something insightful today. I don't know know anything we ever say is insightful. I just, (laughs) I like to imagine it's fun to listen to, though. 
Yeah, I would hope so. Um, it, it's fun. I mean, it's always fun watching movies with you, uh, especially because you have you have an even deep, like a deeper knowledge of film than not only myself but a lot of, of our fellow filmmakers. So it's nice too to hear your antidotes about things. Um, I feel like the I feel like the person though that'll give me a de- uh, the the person who's going to give me the most run for my money because I'm confident he does know more than me is a future guest Brian Holland. Like, oh Brian will give you a run for your money. Yeah, yeah. But uh, no, I I've often felt that that you know some of the people we went to school with that I've got a deeper knowledge than some of them, and not like yeah. in a pretentious way. It's just I feel like more people should know a history of film just a touch better. I like it. That's why I like shows like this. So I was glad to cross Dr. No off my shame list. Speaking of which, actually, before you go, it's, it has, it's not Dr. No, but Amanda got to cross the cabinet of Dr. Caligari off her shame list. I love that that was on her shame list to begin with. That's... It wasn't not so... technically. <laughs> um, it, was, it was for class, but I legitimately loved that movie, so it worked out. Uh, yeah, I thought it was kind of... Uh, when you had mentioned it to me that you guys were watching, I was like, oh, yeah, that's a total film school, like, film that everyone's got to watch. Did she like it? She did. Um, She struggles a little bit with um, silent films. Uh, If you're not giving them full attention, you're missing things. But, you know, I think she really did enjoy it. Good. That is good. Well, onwards and upwards with your... uh, his film history making ways Michael. <laughs> well thanks again for coming on kyle i'll um i'll let you know when this episode's up uh where can the people find you find you on social media uh the people can find me on social media are you looking I it believe... up right now yeah i'm looking it up right now <laughs> i can tell um, you your remember... instagram yeah what's my instagram <laughs> the carp 14 because that's where there we everywhere. go carp with a k um that's a way to show uh to look me up um i'm at the carp on twitter is just the carp without the 14 and then you can also um check out uh the new extinction.com if you want to learn more about a film that i'm working on yeah and actually speaking of before you head out you definitely all should go to that website and check it out because not only did uh kyle's film uh, get a really impressive grant that's going to help them continue to make this film, which is great. So you're, we're all going to be able to see a really cool dinosaur documentary coming up. But the man just got engaged, so give oh him, yeah, give him a little <laughs> bit of love for that. Oh yeah, like <laughs> like as if it's nothing. Oh yeah, that did happen. <laughs> yeah, it's been a good good couple weeks. It has been, and you can, as always, you can find me at Michael underscore Vires on both. Twitter and Instagram, I mean, I don't use Twitter a whole lot, and then you can follow the show uh, at Shameless Picture Show, all one word, on Instagram. We're also on Facebook. We don't get a whole lot of love over there, so I'd really appreciate if you guys would come and share a little bit of insight what you like and don't like. As always, you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio. I almost said Spotify, because there's so many S's in there. We're not on Spotify yet, but I'm hoping soon. Cool. Cool, and then in just here in a second, it, I'm going to do a magical edit so that way you can hear me talk about community and Incubus. And just like that, I am back. See that smooth, seamless edit? Yeah. Anyways, I'm back here to talk about some cool movies that I got from my sponsors. Uh, I was hoping to have a couple more done by the time I did this episode, but as you heard on the first half of the podcast... Just things have been get, uh, gotten crazy. Every time I had a, uh, a night to watch something, 
we either decide to go through some boxes or, and I'll be completely honest here, Red Dead Redemption 2 just came out. That's been taking some time. So, uh, First, I want to talk about a movie that I just got from Vinegar Syndrome called The Incubus. Uh, the back of it says, A quiet New England town becomes the site of a grisly murder and assault, leaving a young man dead and his girlfriend in critical condition. Sam Cordell, head surgeon medical examiner at the local hospital, senses something isn't quite normal about the attacker, but barely a day later, another woman is savagely assaulted and killed. With the realization that a maniac is on the loose, Sam, with the help of police chief Hank Walden and newspaper columnist Laura Kincaid, must unravel the mystery before additional murders occur, all the while unaware that Sam's own daughter Jenny might be next on the victim list. An intense and disturbing supernatural slasher by John Hoff of Legend of Hell House and American Gothic, The Incubus stars acclaimed actor and filmmaker John Cassavetes, best known for A Woman Under the Influence, John Ireland, best known The Shape of Things to Come, and Carrie Keane, best known from Spasms, in her feature film debut. Style she photographed by Albert J. Dunk, best known from Class 1984, and scored by Stanley Myers, best known for The Deer Hunter, Vinegar Syndrome brings this 80s terror classic to Blu-ray for the first time. Galen Village. Tranquil. Quiet. A nice place to live. But something has gone wrong. Look at the bruises on the kid's neck. One hell of a large hand. His spine was crushed like a piece of balsa wood. When the sun goes down, something stalks the streets of Galen Village. Joe wants to call the Attorney General, have him send in some help. What do you think I should do? Take whatever help you can get. Thirty years ago in Galen, these same types of murders occurred. I think my past has something to do with these murders. No, Jim, listen. Something silent. Something lethal. Something or someone is killing the people of Galen. I think I'm going crazy. Every time he has this dream, somebody dies. You're talking about actual materialization. What kind of a quack are you? The boy's in the clear. He's not in the clear. Every time this kid has a dream, somebody in this town dies. It is real. It is alive. It is among us. The Incubus. Um, I really liked The Incubus. I didn't know much about it. Uh, directed by John Hoff, which I just learned how to say his name. I thought it was How or Ho or something like that. Um, no, um, I knew... His work, I knew The Legend of Hell House, obviously, because that movie is fantastic. But no, I knew him from The Legend of Hell House, which I really like. The Watch in the Woods, he directed episodes for the TV show The Avengers, which uh, my friend Emma got me into, which I also really enjoyed. And then I also knew the Escape from Witch Mountain. And yeah, anyways, I just, I, I knew of the director. And... This movie is fascinating to me because it's part slasher film, part supernatural terror film. Um, it's extremely gory. It's really tense. It's it's very gothic. And honestly, 
Uh, the only thing I feel like is missing is if they would have put some snow just drifting down, it would have been a perfect Christmas horror film, honestly. Um, even though, you know, not, not much about the Incubus is really a horror theme. I don't know. I think it would have worked because the film, even though it was a UK director, the film was, and it took place in New England, but the film was shot in Canada and it just had that Canadian feel, like that black Christmas Canadian feel with the crazy wallpaper. And the way that a lot of these Canadian films were shot honestly reminds me of the way that a lot of Italian films are shot. Lots of great snap zooms and uh, great symmetry and composition to the shots. Um, No, I loved this film. Every time that I felt that I normally would have started getting bored, something changed, something happened to keep me going. And John Cassavetes was great in this movie. Um, It was later years, John Cassavetes, which, um, you know... I know him. I know him personally best from Rosemary's Baby. Um, it was kind of great to see him in this film because I just, I just got the feeling that he did this film so he could fund something that he was working on himself. Um, because he had only done a couple more movies after this in terms of acting, but yeah, I don't have a whole lot to say about this film other than I fucking loved it. This movie is definitely. A uh, shameless picture show, uh, uh, shameless picture show podcast approved. Um, I'm still thinking about it. I just watched it a couple hours ago, and I feel like I'm gonna want to re-go through it and watch it again. Um, talk about some of the features that are on here. Um, newly scanned and restored in 4K, mostly from its 35 millimeter negative, with one real source from 35 millimeter print. And they talk about that on there. Uh, and they, they were apologizing for a loss of quality, and honestly, I barely noticed. Had they not have mentioned it, I don't think I would have called them out on it. That being said, I love the Vinegar Syndrome is cool enough to mention when they feel they have done something wrong or it's their bad, so that way they don't get mass complaints. Uh, honestly, didn't didn't re- didn't even recognize the quality degradation. And there's a feature called From the Horror Through the Television, an interview with director John Howe. Or, sorry, I did it again. John Hoff. Um, this is great, too, because he talks about a little bit of everything. So he did the watch in the woods for Disney right after this movie. And he kind of talks about how this movie is made, transitioning from that, his entire career, um, how he got started. This is definitely a cool track if you're into a lot of the, um, the more cult films. Uh, I think he even talks a little bit about the Avengers. Um, not that Avengers. It's a British TV show. Um, and then there's one called Becoming the Incubus, an interview with lead actress Carrie Keene. I did not get a chance to watch that one. Um, and Capturing the Incubus, an interview with DP Albert J. Dunk. This was also a really good featurette. I liked listening to this one, um, especially when I feel like the person in question kind of talks about their influences a little bit and it was kind of amazing to hear uh, Albert Jun- Albert Dunk talk about uh, being a kid and seeing a behind the scenes featurette for 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and that being the reason he wanted to make movies because he was so enamored with that so this movie's got two crazy Disney connections which I absolutely love so yeah, I think that's really cool that he got his start um, because of Disney, and that made him want to go out and shoot films. And then he did this, The Incubus, 
Um, and I believe he even worked for Disney later on. Anyways, um, another cool thing, uh, since Albert Dunk is a Canadian, he worked on Black Christmas. He was uncredited. He was Billy in Black Christmas, which I think is really fucking cool. Uh, I don't think anything he is really he shot after this in class 1984 is nearly as good looking as this film because he shot the fuck out of this movie. He he's always got this. Yeah, I I super recommend this film. Uh, there's also a commentary track with the hysteria continues, which I listened to a little bit of, and I really and I really like when the hysteria continues pops up on these vinegar syndrome releases. The one thing I want to know is. What does the Shameless Picture Show have to do to get a commentary, guys? Um, they're great. They they are obsessed with horror, with slasher films, and their excitement radiates through the commentary. Um, I would have loved something with the director or even the cinematographer in terms of a commentary, but what are you going to do? There's also trims and alternate shots, an original theatrical trailer, multiple TV spots, reversible artwork, and English subtitles, which I guess... I don't, to me, it doesn't seem like it should be a special feature, but there are, I know there are a lot of people out there who really request them, and they're not as easy to do as you'd think. Next up, we from our other sponsor over at Mill Creek, we've got Community, the complete series. This was unexpected. I was not expecting to get an entire series of a TV show, but, you know, I did. For the first time ever on Blu-ray, all six seasons, 110 episodes, from Dan Harmon, best known for TV's Rick and Morty and the Sarah Silverman program, comes Community, a smart and hilarious comedy series about a band of misfits who attend Greendale Community College. Recently disbarred lawyer Jeff Winger and rose to get a legit degree the quickest and easiest way possible, but when he starts a fake Spanish study group solely for the purpose of hooking up with his sexy classmate, he doesn't expect to be joined by a random group of misfit fellow students. Over the course of the next six years, this group finds themselves involved in epic paintball battles, chicken finger conspiracies, sci-fi conventions, campus-wide pillow forts, and everything in between. In the process, they become so much more than just a study group, they become a family. Greendale's alumni include Joe McHale, Jillian Jacobs, Danny Putty, Yvette Nicole Brown, Allison Bree, Donald Glover, Jim Rash, Ken Jong, Chevy Chase, John Oliver, Jonathan Banks, Keith David, and Paget Brewster. On DVD, like a Muslim. Assalamualaikum. Ding Dong. Meet the freshman class of Greendale Community College. <laughs> Jeff. What is my lawyer? Here. I'm a student. I thought you had a bachelor's from Columbia. And now I have to get one from America. Britta. What part of being a single white slacker makes you people so jaded? Oh, you people? What do you mean, you people? I cannot believe I got to say that. Abed. You've never had somebody mess with you before? Yes, just kidding. No. Like that? Annie. A bunch of McCollets are nothing like bananas. Are they? Have you never seen one? Surely. Being a virgin in this day and age is something to be proud of. You're like a unicorn. Troy. You're a football player. It's in your blood. That's racist. Your soul. That's racist. Your eyes. That's gay. That's homophobic. That's black. That's racist. Damn. And Pierce. Sure glad there are no old people here. This conversation would probably be total gibberish to them. Together, they're more than a study group. Jeff and I do not have sexual tension. We just argue all the time. Oh, just like Sam and Diane. Who are Sam and Diane? Okay, we get it. You're young. They're a family. Yeah. 
There is just one of every kind of you, isn't there? Community is fresh, funny, and smart. Everyone, stand on your desk. Seize the day. A classic in the making. What's so funny, Chang? Ta-da. <laughs> Starring Joe McHale. What are you looking at? With Ken Jeong. My nickname is El Tigre. And Chevy Chase. You thought I was dead, didn't you? No. I did. With a full load of bonus features, <laughs> extended episode, cast evaluations. I would replace Joe. And four gag reels. Can I do a PSA for NBC right now? I'm Charlize Theron, and this is Margaret Cho. Hello. The complete first season of television's most overachieving comedy. Trust me, classic college experiences never happen organically. Smooth move, Metamucil. Go through. You just go girl yourself. Stop, stop, what, what? Who cares about a stupid exam? We're a study group. Community on DVD. Let me hear that rap thing of yours again. Don't it. It's that la biblioteca, me llamo T-Bone, la araña discoteca. Discoteca, muneca, la biblioteca, es un bigote grande, pero manteca. Um, on the disc, there's a commentary on almost every single episode, hilarious outtakes, puns, and gag reels, deleted and extended scenes, and over three hours of behind-the-scenes features of cast and crew. Uh, confession time, up until this, I had never seen Community. I saw bits and pieces, my brother was really into this show. Um, and because of that, I kind of rebelled against it, um, because I didn't want to like anything my brother liked, because I personally didn't think he had good taste, um, but that's a story for another time, uh, I, because I found later on that, uh, while I didn't like everything he liked, he did make a couple good calls. This and New Girl were probably the ones I, I, if I could, I would give him credit for introducing me to. Um... So we started at, we were two and a half, no, we're sorry, we're a season and a half in right now. We're almost done with season two. And I am, fuck, I fucking love this show. This has become me and my wife's go-to television show right now. Um, it was a little slow going for me. She really loved it from the first episode. I was a little unsure just because of how much I didn't like Joel McHale's character. Um, but he's, he grew on me. All the characters got better, um. As dumb as that sounds. Pilot episodes, that's what they're for. They're there to work out some of the kinks. But once the show got going, um, I think it became fantastic. Season 2, sp- specifically, I loved everything from their crazy zombie episode. They had a Christmas episode. And anyone who knows me knows I'm a sucker for Christmas. And the entire thing was done in stop motion. Um, there's a, a really touching Dungeons and Dragons episode. Um it's been great. Uh, it's also really awesome to see uh, an early Donald Glover. I'm a big fan of his television show Atlanta. And who doesn't like him as Lando Calrissian? Uh, it's just great to see kind of where he got his start. And just how good he is in the show. Pretty much any scene with him and Danny Putty. Danny Pudi? I'm, I, I might be mispronouncing his name. Inc- uh, might be pronouncing his name wrong. They steal every scene they're in. And honestly, if we could have just gotten a spinoff with those two, uh, Troy and Abed, I would have been stoked. Um, I've heard mixed things about where the show goes and how long it lasts and everything. And we'll see how I feel. Um, but right now, I'm loving it. Um, Chevy Chase is kind of like the... 
the wild card in the series because he plays an asshole, and this is around the time that everyone started realizing how much of an asshole he really was in real life. But um, he plays the character great, probably because Chevy Chase really is kind of an asshole from what I've heard. Um, it's also great to see like the, the directors that came in and did this show. Um, Joe and Anthony Russo? They're fucking directing Marvel movies now. And doing some of the best ones. Who would have thought they got their start on Community? How great is that? Uh, Dan Harmon, who's now bigger than ever because of everyone's insane fandom over Rick and Morty. Which is another show I like. But I think I enjoy Community more. Um, I've listened to a couple episodes. uh, Commentary. And they're good. They're not great. Um, they're always really knowledgeable. It's just, this is not a type of show, like, I'm going to contradict myself here. To me, it's not a show that I'm going to want to listen to every episode with commentary. Uh, but yet, a show like The Simpsons, I do. I can't quite explain what the difference is, other than I'm a Simpsons fanatic. And Community is a great show, but for the most part, it really does kind of follow a path. Like, there's episodes that tie into previous episodes, and they follow story arcs. So it doesn't feel like a show I can easily just jump in into and watch episodes at random. Um, it's kind of like how Eastbound and Down was for me. But, um, no, the commentary is always really good. It's great to hear. You can learn a lot about writing for television, and which is, which is also fascinating. But, um, yeah, it's a little overkill. Not necessarily that's a bad thing. It's just not for me. Uh, the gag reels are always pretty fun, uh, even though I don't normally get, get into gag reels all that much because they're never as funny as I'm hoping they're going to be. But that being said, the show is worth it alone. Um, Bill Creek did a fantastic job on this set. It was kind of weird at the beginning. I had just installed rear speakers for my surround sound system. And I was a little bummed out the first couple, like, first half of the se- season one was all in 2. 2.0 stereo sound, which is fine. It's a television show. I don't expect much more. Um, but I just was really itching to use these speakers. And then just a, a jump happened, and it just went all to 5.1. And it's crazy how much this little comedy show uses those back speakers. You're going to definitely notice it in the, in the three episodes I just mentioned, which were... Um, the zombie Halloween episode, Abed's Christmas episode, and uh, the Dungeons & Dragons episode. They really use those back speakers quite phenomenally. Uh, the show looks great on Blu-ray. The show sounds great. Um, both Incubus and Community get my my highest recommendation. Especially, both things are not anything I have se- had seen before, and I love them, and I want more people to pick these things up. So yeah, that, those are my reviews. Sorry, it's a little haphazard. Uh, I normally like to throw clips in from some of the, co- the commentaries and things, but I'll be un- completely honest with you guys. I am rushing to finish this episode. Um, this week got away from me. As I said at the first part of the episode, this is a part in my dust episode. It's not as cleaned up as the other ones. Like I said, you can hear Frankenstein jingling around in the back, and the entire house is hardwood floors, so you're going to hear her nails. But I appreciate you guys sticking with me. Uh, the show has been difficult um, since losing Nick. 
Didn't mean for this to get sad. Uh, Nick will come back. He's we're already talking about doing our anniversary episode, and we're gonna talk. We're gonna do um, Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street since it's on my shame list, and probably the Cube at some point because it's also on my shame list. But um, no, it's just getting the show back going and and making sure everything is as high quality as we once were, and making sure we constantly have guests because you're listening to me talk to myself right now. I'm not that interesting. I'm not that good on my own. I need someone else. Um, so I really appreciate you guys sticking sticking it out with me. Um, I'm always going to appreciate everything you guys are doing for me and the show. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. Um, please go back and li- listen to last week's episode with Drew Britton if you haven't. It's one of my favorites that I've done. Drew is just a wealth of information. Um I'll have a couple upcoming guests soon. Um, uh, don't quite know what we're going to be talking or when they're going to be on. Some of the people include filmmaker and close friend of mine from film school, Brian Hollandike. I know he wants to talk about foreign films with me. He has sent me a list of things that he wants to talk about. Um, and then we've got uh, Jay Gilkay, who apparently is a listener and really likes the show. He's the head booker and promoter for Milwaukee's own Mondo Lucha, which is pretty fucking cool. Uh, Katie Cadaver, who is a Tromet and burlesque dancer in town. She wants to be on the show. Um, Going to, of course, get my buddy Kyle Arpke back. Going to get Ron Perti back on the show. There are people who want me... There are people out there who want to be on this show and want the show to keep living. So for that, I appreciate it every one of you guys so thank you very much i'm gonna stop rambling my mouth's getting dry i had pretzels earlier um finally go buy the incubus dudes go buy community show vinegar syndrome and mill creek some love and let them know i sent you all right guys i'm gonna stop rambling now thanks again